Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to our online event entitled The Indian Economy, Recent Developments and Prospects, hosted by the School of Public Policy at the LSE. My name is Andres Velasco. I am the Dean of the school and I have the privilege to be chairing this event. And uh, we are very, very pleased and very lucky to be welcoming um, Chairman N.K. Singh from India's 15th Finance Commission and Governor Shaktikanta Das from the RBI, the Reserve Bank of India. They will be joined by um, LSE Director Baroness Minu Shafiq, Professor Lord Nicholas Stern and Dr. Swati Dingra from the Department of Economics here at the LSE. Before I hand it over to Minouche for uh, an introduction, let me take care of a few housekeeping matters. Uh, for Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE India. And for everybody tuning in, this event is being recorded and it will be also available as a podcast, uh, presuming of course that we have no te technical difficulties. And we are going to leave uh, enough time um, in the second half of the event for uh, Q&A with the floor. So uh, please, if you're listening in, and we very much hope you will participate. If you submit your questions using the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen, I will be happy enough to read those questions and post them to the uh, participants. Uh, the rules of the game are going to be that, uh, as I said already, LSE Director Minu Shafiq is going to provide an introduction. Then uh, Chairman Singh will provide his initial observations on fiscal federal issues in India. And then we will move to Governor Shaktikanta Das. Uh, and then we will be lucky enough to have comments by Martin Wolf, who is the Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times, and also by Professor Dingra from the Department of Economics. That's it for me as far as introductory housekeeping uh, issues are concerned. And now let me pass it uh, on to uh, Menu Shafiq. Menush, floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andras. And just briefly for me, uh, these days it feels like the world is, is bouncing from one crisis to another. The pandemic is still raging in many parts of the world. It's created huge disruptions in global trade. We see shortage in everything from computer chips to petrol. The dysfunction of the political situation in the United States uh, is a threat to the world economy with worries about debt ceilings and trade wars. Meanwhile, the world's economic superpowers, the US, China and Europe, continue to ramp up their competition, even as the climate crisis manifests, manifests itself in new and frightening ways. And amidst all those headlines that we see every day about these emerging crises, it's easy to lose sight of one of the most important shifts in the world today. The fact that India, the world's largest democracy and one of its five largest economies, is charting a course through this turmoil and looking to answer a fundamental question. How will it deliver for its almost 1.4 billion citizens? And what will be its place in the global economy? Now, of course, at the LSE, we always have our eye on India. Uh, we've always paid close attention to what's happening there 
since our founding in 1895 and have enjoyed a long and fruitful collaboration. Many of you have heard me joke that Oxford and Cambridge trained the people who ran the empire, but the LSE trained the people who overthrew the empire and replaced it. Indeed, we've taught over 10,000 Indian students over the years and today have more than 60 faculty conducting research on all aspects of India, from anthropology to law to geography to political science and economics. And of course, our most famous student, Ambedkar, the father of the Indian constitution, and one of the intellectual inspirations behind the Reserve Bank of India when he wrote his thesis on the problem of the rupee, its origin and solutions. And of course, one of my distinguished predecessors as director of LSE, I.G. Patel, was one of the most distinguished predecessors of one of today's speakers, uh, Shakti, as the 14th governor at the Reserve Bank of India. And Nick Stern, of course, who will speak uh, later today, honors Patel's name and the spirit and spirit as the I.G. Patel professor at the school and has a many decades long association with India. And of course, Lord Magna Desai has an academy named in his honor, which teaches economics in Mumbai. And our International Growth Center has commissioned more than 300 research papers on India, bringing top academics from all over the world to think about development issues in India. So the study and the context, the study of India is core to who we are, and today's event needs to be seen in that wider context. And we could not ask for a more distinguished panel to help us think through the current economic challenges facing India and why it's so important for the world to think about them. So I'm very much looking forward to the comments of all of our panelists, and I'll pass it back to Andres. Thank you very much, Manoush. That's a great line about the empire. I will be sure to use it with, <laughs> with attribution, of course. Uh, and I see that uh, Martin Wolf has joined us. Martin, welcome. Very pleased and honored to have you here. Um, as Manoush said, this is an absolutely first-rate, amazing panel, and we count ourselves lucky to be sharing this virtual stage with every one of you. Wonderful. So on to the main order of business. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Chairman Singh for his opening remarks. NK, floor is yours. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. Uh, the outset, thank you, Andre, uh, for uh, this great and unique opportunity to share some of my ideas and our ideas about the nature of the Indian federal polity. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Baroness uh, Director Manu Shafiq. Thank you, Nick Stern, for being part of this today. I'm equally beholden to my good friend, uh, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, Honorable Sri uh, Shaktikan Sinha who was incidentally also a member of the, this finance commission before he became the governor of the RBI. And of course, to my very old friend, uh, Martin, one of the most serious economic commentators whose analysis of uh, complex economic issues has always been enlightening. Indeed, his column just three days ago on uh, the consequences of some uh, developments in the Chinese economy and its global implications have been equally enlightening. Uh, the overall framework on which I wish to talk about today is the issues of center-state relations in India. 
uh, India must be viewed in a broader context. For a country of India's size, there was no other option. And you mentioned uh, director to Ambedkar. Uh, there were no other option uh, to the framers of our constitution than to have a federal framework. Uh, this was necessary, keeping in view the cultural, economic, and religious diversities, differences in geography, in differences in other forms, uh, differences in the pursuit of cultural habits, then to have a federal structure. Those who analyze the federal economies argue that the overriding principle in any working federation is one of subsidiarity, namely, what are the functions at, and the distribution of powers and functions at different layers of government which are best designed to serve the electorate? We adopted this constitution of India uh, as a union of India, as a federation, not a confederation. A case of holding together, not coming together. Nobody extinguished their sovereignty or their autonomy to be part of the union. And while therefore the union is indestructible, the subsisting entities are not because the parliament has the powers to change the contours and configurations, create more state entities than exist today. Each of the federating units have significant autonomy, having a separate legislature, a judiciary, and, an ex and the executive. The broad functions between the center and the states have been defined and embedded in what is called the seventh schedule of our constitution, done by, again, uh, the great Ambedkar, which divides all functions of governance between three entities, between subjects, which are exclusively in the domain of this union, those which are exclusively in the domain of the states, and those which are in a category called the concurrent list, where both the states and the union can enact legislations, except that if the union and the parliament enacts one, it will take uh, and trump any uh, state-level legislations. Uh, on the financial side, the constitution followed the Government of India Act of 1909 and 1935, it was, and it was recognized at that time that even while the resources, namely taxes and revenues, would be shareable, the expenditure of the states would perhaps exceed always the likely revenue which they are able to garner or generate. An equitable and appropriate revenue distribution, therefore, was central to the polity. The constitution, therefore, provided an independent finance commission, which would have several functions. First, to pool together all the resources together, earmark them between the center and the states, which is called the vertical split, the center and the states, and then to distribute them among the states based on some normative principles, which is called the horizontal distribution. The vertical split, which is based on the formula of the, of the Finance Commission, does not form part of the consolidated fund. However, in addition, the Constitution provided that notwithstanding this, the states may require more support, may require more support for the third tier, which came about after the 73rd and 74th constitutional amendment, may require it for disaster management, may require it for a gap between revenue and expenditure, and provided, therefore, some provisions for that. The distribution of resources, therefore, have two components. First, that is, one, 
which is outside the consolidated fund of india namely whatever the finance commission awards is outside the consolidated fund of india and goes directly to the states without any conditions the other goes as grants and the grants really are can be conditional because they are do not constitute the right of the state and they come out of the consolidated fund of india so so far in our history the president has constituted 15 finance commission from the inception of the constitution it is obligatory on the part of the president to constitute a finance commission every 5 years the commissions usually make an award for a 5 year period except ours where the president instructed us to provide it for 6 years instead of just 5 years so uh, the finances of the union therefore in 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 giving giving our awards we ensured uh, that uh, the needs of the center and the states were reasonably taken care of in the awards which have been accepted which we made we decided to allocate 41% of the total revenues to the central government the balance to the states in addition to about um, 2.5% of gdp to the states by way of grants to take care of the third tier or disaster management and any bridging of the gap between inescapable expenditure and uh, uh, the the likely revenue which was going to be garnered this was the, therefore the broad framework of the award which we gave given the shortage of time i want to pose five or six critical challenges in as we go forward the first challenge is on whether the norms for the distribution of resources among the states require a fundamental rethink these norms are generally divided between three baskets the basket of equity the basket of efficiency and the basket of needs equity in terms of income distance efficiency by way of say tax efforts and demographic management and the needs in terms of population and geographical area now for instance to give you an example the issue of population became one of the most contentious issues for my commission because of 40 years before my commission the commissions had been asked to use the census data of 1971 for the first time after 40 years we were asked to use the census data of 2011 and therefore this resulted in huge apprehensions on the part of some states that what about us we have done good demographic management we have invested in girl child education we have will we be penalized if you use the more contemporary census data for purposes of according marks on population so i think that we had to do a balancing job of trying to find a balance between recognizing population and giving some weightage to what i called a demographic uh, management and demographic efficiency but it was a balancing job but this is a problem which will not go away the second is the weightage to the issue of equity and income distance it is a familiar practice that all finance commissions measure the per capita income distance between the best states worst states and seek to bridge that by giving a robust award for enabling states which have lagged behind in terms of the per capita income but this raises another moral issue states where population management have been better 
the growth rates have been better, argue for how long should we subsidize the states which have not done so well? Uh, is, it, is it fair? Is it moral? Is there a time horizon? And how is this balancing act uh, uh, going to be achieved? Apart from this, the second issue is the comprehensive nature of the revenue basket itself. Now, whereas all revenues which are generated constitute what are called the gross revenues, the divisible part of the revenues are usually take out the proceeds of disinvestment, dividends from all public sector undertakings, any receipts from the, which come from the Reserve Bank of India, and take out all cess and surcharges. The states have argued that these divisions and taking out all this from the divisible pool is not quite fair to them. That debate is also open. The third issue relates to the application of article, something called the Article 282 of the Constitution. This is a very peculiar article, which says that irrespective of the distribution of functions between the center and the states, both the center and the states can, for any public purpose, make any grant whatsoever. Now, the way this developed was that the entire grant structure of the planning commission in myriads of centrally sponsored schemes came under the application of this article 282 of the constitution and the problem of the centrally sponsored schemes, which cost the central government uh, close to 1.2 percentage point of GDP each year, which cost the state governments an equal amount, depending uh, the states are not too happy, and yet nobody wants to get out of this. The central government have made re repeated attempts at rationalization of these centrally sponsored schemes, and this is an ongoing exercise, but this really, in some ways, impinges what the states perceive their autonomy. It also impinges on the rationalization process. The fourth important far-reaching change, which you need to focus on, is the recent, from 2017, when we had a goods and services tax, it submerged all the excise duties which state governments had, more, most of it, into a common divisible pool called the uh, GST, goods and services tax. This is, of course, a state GST, a union GST, and a shared GST. The states really voluntarily agreed to merge their taxation powers, but in practice, they say that many of their fiscal autonomy has been taken away. Now, the functions of the GST comes, which administers this, fixes the rates, is still in a learning curve. And the dynamics of this will need to be watched as we go forward. The fifth important issue is that the issue of a fiscal and a debt path. Now, what we have done as a finance commission is that for the first time, we had a separate exercise and we have given disaggregated fiscal and debt targets for the union and for each of the states. And this disaggregated debt target, which limits the borrowing capability of the states, on which I'm sure the governor is, is more wise than any of us, really is another area on which the dynamics will have to be watched. The sixth area is the evolving political dynamics. The role of the chief ministers, particularly the prime minister. This has become increasingly not only important, but it has evolved. India has moved away, therefore, from a classic Westminster model of democracy to a model which mirrors what would normally be presidential. Why do I say this? 
This is because elections after elections, votes are garnered on the basis of the potential prime ministerial candidate. This has a remarkable impact on electoral outcomes. These outcomes, when translated into governance, have therefore created legitimate expectations of the electorate on the behavior of the central government. India has withstood the test of time, unlike many other federal entities, where the different entities and their functions are cast in stone. In our context, they are malleable. They are malleable for two reasons. One, by the nature of the entities and entries in the concurrent list, malleable for what can be done under Article 282. And it is therefore my view that it is this malleability, not inflexibility, which federal romantics often conceive as trampling over the autonomy of states, which has kept the constitution and the architecture in one place. There have been periods when the central government is dependent on the cooperation of the states, when regional parties are strong, the fulcrum of governance and balance shift somewhat in favor of the states. There have been other occasions when the pendulum has swung in the opposite direction with the central bias. Anyway, as the pendulum oscillates between these two directions, the flexible nature of the constitution in the federal polity is what has kept the federal architecture overall intact and speaks of the sagacity and vision of the framers of the constitution, not in giving too many, uh, too many tight compartments. Many have suggested that looking at contemporary challenges, we need to return to the drawing board. We need to redraw the contours of the constitution, the demarcation of functions contained in the seventh schedule, which I mentioned, bring it in congruence with the compulsions or the central's changing obligations over time and the necessities of the states. These debates between the authoritarian center and the state as a recipient is an ongoing dynamic. But I do believe that a rethink on this basic framework on the seventh schedule, looking at contemporary challenges would enhance the trust and greater trust in the ongoing federal polity. The nature of the governance, the architecture globally is undergoing a change and perhaps the world in general is maybe moving towards and away from a Westminster model to a more presidential model embedded in the practicality in the way in which this has all evolved. The federal framework of India finally has stood the test of time. It is its flexibility, not as a classical federal model, but if I may say so, a federal or a hybrid federal model, which has been flexible enough to accommodate changes. The robustness of this framework was the sagacity and wisdom of the framers of our constitution. It is rightly said, it is not the strongest or the most intelligent who will survive, but those who can manage change. We have managed change and the Federation has adapted itself to the changing circumstances and proved malleable enough for this adaptation. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity to present uh, some thoughts on the overall architecture of center-state relations and India's fiscal federalism. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, um, N.K. Those are fascinating and important issues, very relevant for India, but also 
very relevant for many other countries that are struggling precisely on, on issues of fiscal architecture, relations between the center and the states, provinces, cities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Wonderful uh, introductory set of remarks for what I'm sure will be a very, very rich discussion on India and India's challenges. Governor, I have the pleasure uh, of handing it over to you. Again, we're delighted that you could be joining us today. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Andreas, for uh, giving me the floor. And uh, let me also take this opportunity to thank uh, Nick uh, for inviting me and uh, Minosh also for being here and inviting me to this event. I think uh, Sri N.K. Singh has uh, set a very interesting context for today's uh, uh, discussion. Having said that, I must add that I am also looking forward with a lot of interest to the comments of uh, Martin Ulf and uh, Swati Dhingra after the, you know, after my intervention is over. So let me try and start uh, from where uh, N.K. Singh left. I think he has set the context uh, beautifully and uh, uh, really sort of, you know, that he has really captured the essence of uh, India's uh, fiscal federal architecture and what are the challenges which have been encountered and how despite the challenges the you know the indian federation has been able to deal and uh, deal with and address the various challenges which have come from time to time now the article 1 of the indian constitution reads as follows it says india that is bharat shall be a union of states so by an initial reading of the constitution, one would uh, get an impression that India is a union and not a federation. The, the unique thing about Indian constitution is that article one says that it is a union, union of states. It is indeed a union of states. But I think the underlying essence of the union is the fiscal federalism and the federal setup which has been set up politically. The state legislatures have enough powers to spend money to collect taxes in the area from areas assigned to them and to spend money on various, uh, you know, on various uh, uh, expenditure heads, excepting, of course, uh, things like uh, defense or uh, foreign relations and other things, which falls within the do domain of the union government. Now, this fiscal architecture, this federal fiscal architecture, Again, the highlights of this architecture, which N.K. Singh has rightly pointed out, the first and the foremost uh, you know, highlight of the fiscal architecture is the mechanism of the Finance Commission. Now, the Finance Commission mandatorily has to be constituted every five years, and it is constituted under the signature of the President of India. In our system of government, Government orders are issued in the name of the president. So it will be a civil servant who would sign the order, but it would say that on behalf of the, by order of the president of India. But constitution formation of a finance commission is one of the very few orders where the president of India himself signs the order. So that is the kind of importance which uh, the constitution has given to the of mechanism of the finance commission and the role of the finance commission in deciding on allocation of uh, resources on the central taxes which are co collected and how it is to be distributed among the states 
that is again assigned, that role is assigned to the uh, Finance Commission. The other aspect is that through a subsequent amendment to the Indian Constitution, we have the mechanism of a State Finance Commission. So just as the Finance Commission decides on allocation of resources from the divisible pool of resources, how much should go to the states on what principle, principles of efficiency or equity and the other principles which M.K. Singh described. You have the constitution also now provides for a state level finance commission, which is expected to decide and which is mandated to decide the flow of resources from the state finances, from the state kitty into the local bodies, into the urban local bodies and into the rural local bodies. So you have the mechanism of the finance commission, one operating at the union level and the other one operating at the level of the states. But unfortunately, the mechanism of the state finance commissions has not really worked as efficiently and as promptly as the union finance commission. Although the constitutional provisions for both the finance commissions are identical, but so far as the state finance commission is concerned, I think there are still, uh, you know, there are delays in formation of uh, the state finance commissions and uh, uh, even with regard to the quality of uh, the report. I think uh, the Union Finance Commission reports historically have been far, you know, have been much stronger and much more analytical than the state finance uh, commissions. So I think this is one of the areas where we need to improve to strengthen the mechanism of the state uh, finance commissions. So these are the two mechanisms which have set the context for uh, the fiscal federalism in India. And uh, having said that, let me also say that, uh, particularly, I mean, uh, uh, since uh, N.K. Singh is here, I think the report of the 15th Finance Commission, of which I was a member for about uh, one year before moving to the Reserve Bank of India, I think this report of the 15th Finance Commission was prepared in extremely challenging circumstances because part of the tenure of the 15th Finance Commission overlapped with the COVID-19 pandemic. So given all the restrictions, all the challenges, I think the uh, Finance Commission completed its job. And quite rightly, the report is called, uh, the title of the report is uh, Finance Commission in uh, COVID Times. And I think history will judge uh, how the 15th Finance Commission, what kind of challenges uh, it encountered. Now, there are two important recommendations. There are many recommendations which are, uh, you know, which are extremely useful for our federal uh, fiscal uh, mechanism. But there are two recommendations in the report of the 15th Finance Commission which really appeal to me a lot. The first one is a greater emphasis on performance-based grants. That is grants based on performances, grants uh, which are expected to act by way of incentives to states to undertake certain reforms and to under, undertake certain transformative measures. That is the first point. Second thing which appealed to me again most is the higher transfer that the report of the 15th Finance Commission provided, the higher quantum of transfer which 15th Finance Commission provided to the local bodies, urban local bodies and to the rural local bodies. And not only that, I think considering the uncertain times that we live in, the kind of impact which COVID-19 has produced on our revenue resources on our tax collections. And that is the 
position in other countries as well. I think uh, the Finance Commission has done again a very judicious, it's a very wise decision to prescribe uh, transfer of fixed amounts rather than percentages of the divisible pool. Because when you give the fixed amount, irrespective of how high or how low are the tax collections by the union government, a fixed amount, a predetermined amount is supposed to be transferred to the states, or uh, supposed to be transferred to the local bodies. So these are the two important recommendations which I thought have made a great difference uh, and have really uh, sort of strengthened the mechanism of our federal uh, fiscal architecture. Now, I am constrained uh, quite a bit because the, we just uh, completed the monetary policy uh, meeting last Friday and uh, statutorily there is a bar on me for uh, one week. I'm not supposed to talk on issues relating to finance, uh, relating to the monetary policy, which would obviously mean growth, inflation, and uh, that uh, all those aspects. So I'm constrained uh, to comment on that because of the statutory bar. So, but I thought, let me focus a little bit more on the state finances, because in any deliberation, in any debate on uh, public finance in India, I think the focus always tends to be on the central uh, finances. I thought I will just provide some uh, reflections, some uh, reflections on the state of uh, on the on the state uh, finances, on the finances of the subnational. Now, and this is very important because sixty percent of the general government expenditure, that is the expenditure by the union government and the expenditure done by all states put together, sixty percent of this expenditure is undertaken by the states compared to the global average of about uh, 30%. This was 30% is the figure which uh, was given out in one of the IMF reports of, I think, 2014 or 2015. But compared to the global average of 30%, which is uh, spent by, you know, the subnational entities, that is the provincial governments, in India, 60% of the general government expenditure comes from the state. So that is the importance of state finances in the fiscal uh, in the you know in the fiscal uh, uh, in the fiscal state of things in india now so therefore the state finances and the expenditures by the states do play an important role in the you know in the growth of the country's gdp and more particularly in times like the current times when india is recovering from one of the worst damages of uh, you know one of the worst challenges to its uh, uh, economy now the state finances today uh, again, here I would like to again uh, just highlight some four or five themes which are critical components of uh, the state's uh, expenditure mechanism and which I think the states, some states do focus on these issues, but I think uh, certain things which, uh, you know, which require perennial attention and greater attention, especially in the post-COVID times when the focus of everyone in the country is on revival. The first and the foremost is that I think in the current context, one has to accept. And one thing which uh, the COVID has brought out very clearly and unambiguously is that uh, our expenditure on healthcare and education needs to be really significantly stepped up. Central government level, more so in the at the state government level. And uh, the gap in the education facilities, the gap in the healthcare facilities is something which needs higher 
you know, greater focus. For example, with regard to education, when online education, when virtual classes started, it was a lower rung of the society which did not have access to, you know, access to computers or access to laptops, which were not able to sort of cope up with the online classes. And that was a challenge which had to be encountered. So new problems have come up. And I think uh, the states, along with the center, will have to address uh, these issues. So healthcare, education and skills. I think skills is another area which requires much greater attention. India has been, I mean, over the years, giving a lot of in, uh, emphasis on skill development. Uh, central government has now a program called uh, Skill India Mission. A lot of money is being sort of uh, spent on this. But this has become, COVID has again brought out this requirement far more because with greater automation, lot of employment, lot of labor, which does the low-skilled jobs, that is becoming redundant. So that huge mass of low-skilled labor needs to be, you know, their skill levels will have to be upgraded so that they remain in the job market. So that is the first focus area, therefore, education, health, and uh, uh, skill building. The second area, I think, uh, which is very important is, uh, uh, you know, again, I draw from what happened, uh, uh, you know, after the post-global uh, financial crisis. Post-GFC, we found that the states, in order to comply with the fiscal parameters, that is maintaining their fiscal deficit targets, many states cut down on their capital expenditure, cut down their expenditure on infrastructure. Now, that should not be repeated today. It's very important that the states uh, sort of uh, focus, continue to focus on that and uh, do not cut back, do not cut their capital expenditure. The third point is that, uh, you know, I have looked at uh, all of you are aware. I mean, it's not, not something which I am revealing for the first time. It's known to everyone. The debt to GSDP, that is the gross uh, state uh, domestic product, that is the each state GSDP and the debt to GSDP. Now, the ratio overall is about 26% or so pre-pandemic. But there's a wide divergence across states. Some states have a debt to G, uh, GSDP starting from 17% and it goes up to 42%. So there are therefore some developed states and quite a few states which have a low debt to GSDP ratio today, which is very good. It's a very strong fiscal, uh, it's a strong macro, you know, it's a strong economic parameter and all complements to them. But I think, I feel that they have space to step up more, you know, step up their expenditure, especially relating to infrastructure or education and health. Because when you provide more, when you spend more in one state, which can afford to spend more, which has the space to spend more, naturally, it should be able to kickstart a kind of investment cycle whose spillovers will flow to the other states also and which will contribute to the country's uh, GDP. The fourth point which I wanted to mention is that uh, I referred to it just a little while ago. I think greater focus on quality of uh, expenditure needs to be given. I spoke about it uh, this month, uh, this year in January in one of, the, one of my le lectures. I think the time has come for us to develop certain measurable parameters to assess the quality of expenditure. 
all our parameters are quantitative in you know quantitative in terms of uh, you know a percentage of capital expenditure or uh, uh, what is the fiscal deficit what is the debt to G gdp and all that but i think it is the quality of expenditure which is very important how much a state is spending on capital expenditure on infrastructure and other uh, expenditures which have greater multiplier effects and which make a difference to the lives of people in terms of access to education health and skills so measurable parameters need to be developed in the reserve bank of india our research uh, team um, has uh, started an attempt in this direction and there was a, a bulletin article which was uh, published this year in the month of june in june 2021 there is a bulletin article which uh, has attempted which has endeavored to provide certain uh, you know certain measurable parameters to assess the quality of uh, expenditure more work needs to be done on that reserve bank is continuing its exercise but i think this is one area where lse also uh, can uh, sort of contribute a great to the academic uh, discourse on this area which eventually should find its way into actual policy making and uh, uh, fourth point which i would like to fourth or maybe fifth point which i just mentioned i would like to mention before i quickly conclude is the time has again come this is one thing which uh, right from my younger days in the civil service we have been talking about it but today the requirement is felt even more i think the states also states and also the central government but more at the state level because i do know that at the central government level some exercise has been commenced i think it is the time to uh, review all existing schemes and see which schemes have outlived their utility and uh, need to be discontinued once initiated a scheme cannot have a permanent uh, life obviously once it should have quantifiable specific targets and once those targets are reached the scheme should be withdrawn or if the targets are not being achieved then something inherently wrong in the scheme and the scheme or the program needs to be uh, modified so that is the fifth point i would like to mention and the sixth and the last point which i would like to mention i think uh, uh, today uh, like never before uh, i think there is again a need for bringing in uh, bringing in a strong element of prudence in uh, public uh, expenditure and the test of uh, prudence is uh, because there is always uh, there are competing demands for uh, on every government on every state government to spend on x y or z now the states need to undertake <coughs> an evaluation of the competing demands and the decision to select one particular scheme over the above other one is the assessment of the state government on what kind of multiplier effect it is going to have what kind of impact it's going to make on the lives of the people so there has to be also elements of uh, rigorous targeting of beneficiaries those aspects need to be brought in basically the multiplier effects and the outcomes need to be properly assessed before any scheme is uh, launched and every new scheme which is launched should have a sunset date so that there is a mechanism for a very rigorous and uh, you know a hardcore review about the scheme whether it has succeeded or it has not succeeded or it needs to be uh, you know needs to be suitably modified because it's hitting the wrong target so these are some of the reflections which i wanted to share uh, with uh, this uh, august uh, gathering that we have today i do realize that you have lot more uh, participants who are 
you know participating in this uh, event today and uh, i would like to stop here and look forward to the comments and observations and the next part of the uh, discussion thank you very much thank you very much governor for those remarks drawing both on your current role and your earlier role as a member of the uh, finance commission and of course uh shak to be assured that we understand uh, the constraints placed uh, on what uh, issues you can and cannot address given your current role as governor of the RBI and i'm sure people who are listening in and who will be asking questions will be mindful of those um of those rules and regulations as well okay as i said at the outset we are lucky to have uh, a wonderful pair of discussants slash respondents martin wolf and uh, swati dingra we're going to give them about uh, five to seven minutes each so that they can respond to what we have heard and maybe add anything else that they feel is relevant to the discussion so without further ado martin the floor is yours so um <clears throat> thank you very much andres um it's a great honor to be part of this um my own view is from the outside of course but i followed india fairly closely since my first visit when i was the world bank senior divisional economist in 1974 at which time the governor of india's chief economic advisor was manmohan singh i would just have to comment before i make my remarks that minushi is really far too modest about the impact of the lse on india um uh, many of my indian friends would insist that the lse was the fount and origin of indian socialist planning which uh, uh particularly the influence of Harold Lasty uh which blighted india for about four decades and if oxford and cambridge has to be blamed for the empire i think you might take a little blame for indian socialism nonetheless my final introduction uh um because i'm going to focus on different things what i think has been brought out in the discussions uh, by the governor and and nk singh who i've known for many many decades it in is india is a miracle sui generis in its scale and diversity and what they brought out in many different ways is the immense challenges of running a country as large as diverse and i think something they didn't perhaps i don't stress enough to my mind but they did indicate it diverging in important ways with with some states that are far more successful economically than others and the and also much better governed than others this is these are immense challenges now what i intend to do is to focus on um things that they didn't talk about so much to broaden it out we are supposed to be talking about the uh um about the uh the um uh the about uh, um the development of india as a whole in the economy recent developments and prospects so i'm going to talk about um uh two issues the impact of the covid crisis and then longer run challenges and i hope this just gives a slightly different dimension i have a presentation which i'm not going to put up on the screen because i have there is enough time but i think i can make the main points in just a few minutes just to people uh uh um to, to just for the for the discussion 
So on the COVID crisis, it's pretty clear that the crisis has been, in, I think the right word is devastating. It's been a, and I think it has involved some very, very serious policy mistakes by the government, but also particularly over the first lockdown. And also it has revealed, and I think uh, the governor in particular stressed this, the weakness of the health infrastructure uh, of the country. It has generated a huge shock to the informal non-agricultural sector. I mean, partly because of the lockdown, which generates a quarter of GDP and 40% of employment. It has generated a huge shock to GDP, which according to the IMF back in, uh, in, uh, um, um, uh, in April, will have shrunk by shrunk by about eight percent last year and the um and though a strong recovery was expected india is clearly not going to get back to trend a pre-crisis trend growth for a long time um it's, so this is going to be it seems to me and i'll be interested in the governor's and mk's comments a permanent loss to india which is obviously really concerning, um, and the uh, and the um, the nature of the exodus is really unclear. Um, secondly, that has been touched upon. It's of course been a very big shock to the public finances. Um, fiscal deficit. Well, again, the IMS forecast for last year was that the um, general government deficit will be uh, over twelve percent of GDP. I presume. There will be more accurate figures now, but this has led to a very big jump in public debt ratios. General government debt gross debt ratios are now over 90% of GDP. And for an emerging country, even one that can largely borrow in its own currency, that's pretty high. And that has to be a priority in considering where things are going to go, how the public finance is going to be managed in the light of the damage done by COVID. And these are, I think, this is an interesting issue in the context of these broader fiscal um, issues that we've already been talking about. Then finally, long-run challenges. It's very controversial what the underlying growth rate of India now is. Um, personally, I consider the best analyst of the Indian economy, this will probably be a controversial view, is my dear friend Shankar Acharya, who was uh, chief economic advisor to the Indian government throughout the 90s, the reforming 90s. And his view is that trend growth is about 5% today, which will be down from 8% in the first decade of the 21st century. Some people are more pessimistic, some people are more optimistic. But just to bring out, if that is right, that means the growth of GDP per head will have halved from its pre-crisis, pre-financial crisis rate. And that's immensely disturbing um, for the future of India and for the future of the Indian people. This is partly due to what can only be described as erratic reform efforts under all governments or both governments after the glory years of the 1990s, when again, several governments were involved. It's not a partisan issue. It's a cross-party issue. There are very large structural problems in the corporate financial sectors. And to my mind, equally important, very significant evidence of a closing down to the world, especially on trade, with a remarkably rapid decline in the ratio of trade to GDP in recent years. 
And as, of course, has also been stressed, significant failures of institutional reforms, what are sometimes called second generation reforms in education, health and governance, including, as the governor brought out, not least in state governance. Uh, but to me, this indicates that um, there are some really important challenges if the country is to achieve what its people demand and what its capacity suggests it ought to achieve and to avoid what looks at the moment to be a very depressing slowdown in the underlying rate of growth with really quite important social effects. Thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Swati Dingra, Professor of Economics at uh, the LSE, over to you. Great, thanks. So let me start with saying I'm probably the last generation who has lived through India's socialism. And some of it I would say was very good indeed. So let me start with that note and first saying that I completely agree with Martin in terms of how big the challenge is for India now. Just to give you one statistic that might help to put that in perspective, global poverty has been declining since a few decades. India single-handedly is responsible for changing that trend as a result of the COVID crisis. So in terms of sort of what the constraints are on fiscal space, I completely understand for developing countries having a high debt to GDP ratio is obviously going to possibly put pressure on public finances, but overwhelmingly, including credit rating agencies have insisted that India's fiscal response has been too weak compared to most developing nations or most comparable countries. And just to put that in perspective, India spent about 4% of GDP after the, greater, after the financial crisis, the first wave of the pandemic, the response was estimated to be about 1.2% of GDP. Even Indonesia has spent per capita three times more than what India spent per capita. And what has resulted though, as a, what has happened as a result of that, I think is really particularly alarming. And since I'm probably the youngest person on this panel, I think it's imperative for me to bring this up because it's young people who've really suffered. So just to give you an idea, not too far from where uh, Governor Das's hometown is and definitely part of where um, Chairman N.K. Singh's hometown is, we surveyed people in the Biju states in Bihar, Jharkhand, Uttar Pradesh, right after the first wave of the pandemic and just before the second wave of the pandemic. 80% of people, all of who were employed before the pandemic, that was our sampling strategy, that these were only young people who were in employment before the pandemic. 80% of them during April <coughs> 2020, the first wave of the pandemic, found themselves out of work, out of pay. That number continued to be 40% when we went back to the field in between January to March 2021. So 10 months on from the lockdown, these people have continued to be in unemployment. And for a young country like India, where the large proportion of people are in, in the workforce, are in fact young people, this really spells a lot of doom and gloom because it really sort of starts to discourage their ability to make a good life for themselves. This is, of course, paired with the learning losses that we're seeing everywhere in the world, but in India, they tend to be particularly acute. So just to give you a sense of those numbers, in a recent survey on schools in India, just about 8% of rural kids were actually enrolled in some form of online training and 24% in urban areas. This is roughly the same as how many have a computer at home. So it shouldn't be that surprising coming from there. 
Let me come back to connect all of this. The huge challenge that's there, probably not necessarily right now is the time for fiscal discipline, though I take Martin's point that there needs to be some check on that. But that probably has to come from greater revenue generating capacity. And I will congratulate the Finance Commission on that, that they have brought these issues to the fore about the real sort of important need for being able to generate more, more revenues, as well as to be able to think about how local bodies, both in rural areas as well as in urban areas, are going to sort of fulfill the spirit of the 74th Amendment, which promised to have more devolution to local governments. Despite all of that, it's a bit depressing to see that the own revenue generating capacity, particularly of urban local bodies, is still weak. So let me give you Mr. N. Kissing's hometown's example, since I know that city better. In Patna, only about 20% of the revenue is coming in these urban local bodies is coming from their own revenues. If we look at property taxes in India, it's actually an alarming situation that 0.37% just 0.37% goes into property tax as a fraction of per capita income. So without being able to generate more resources, whether that be right at the top of the income distribution or the wealth distribution, it's going to be very difficult to fulfill the potential of young people in the country. And I would really urge you to think about what the long-term unemployment is going to do to India and what these learning losses are going to do to India in the future. Many of the structural challenges that existed before the pandemic have just got much bigger and the fiscal space needs to think about how that could be addressed, those challenges, those breaks, which have just become wider and wider. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Swati, for bringing all those important additional elements into the discussion. As uh, Minouj mentioned at the outset, we're also very lucky to be joined by, by Nick Stern, who is not only the IG Patel professor at the LSE, but also has been involved with India for many, many years. And uh, we've asked Nick to provide some uh, additional comments, some summation, uh, I'm sure some wisdom as well. And then we will turn to the audience for Q&A. Nick, uh, over to you, please. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Andres. And it's a special privilege to uh, be part of a, a seminar um, where the, the, the core speeches come from uh, my old friend uh, N.K. Singh and Governor uh, Shakti Kantadas. And, and they were absolutely outstanding speeches, as of course were the commentaries. I'm going to try to pick up on issues raised by N.K. and uh, Shakti. Um, Martin and Swati focused wisely and importantly on uh, a number of things, but particularly on the shock of COVID. And that is critical and important, but I'm going to look a bit uh, longer term than that to pick up on some of the issues that NK and, Gov and Governor Shakti Kantadas raised. Please don't get me wrong. It's not that I see the COVID as uh, anything other than absolutely central and immense. It's just that uh, very well covered by Martin and, and Swati, and I, I want to look questions they raised. For those of you who have not seen the report, it is called uh, In COVID Times, and it has, I think, a very um, important combination of the shorter run and the longer run. But let me focus on the longer run. The first thing is the question that I want to pick up is the question that NK raised about the criteria for uh, looking at resource allocation across the states. 
if you like, the horizontal story that N.K. raised. And he raised the very difficult question is how far do you support states that are not doing very well in large measure as a result of their not doing very well from the point of view of governance and economic governance? And it's long been a debate in, uh, in India. And that's a tough question. And I was very interested in what Shakti had to say there. There may be a case, and it's actually a very interesting recovery-oriented story, but also for the longer term, of going for investment where it's got the highest rates of return and has got the most powerful multipliers. And Shakti raised that question directly. And when you're thinking about recovery and beyond recovery to the very big investments that India and everybody else has to make in terms of um, changing the way we manage energy, changing the structure of our cities from the point of view of environment, climate, and so on, that question, it seems to me, in the context of the rapid change we need and the big investment we need for infrastructure and the environment, together with the investment we need for the recovery from COVID, I think puts a different light on where investment should take place. And it's very interesting to compare the discussion, uh, if you like, in India with long, long experience of this and the rather more recent discussion in the UK around levelling up. And uh, in the UK, we now have a, a period of discussion where the backwardness in terms of GDP and so on, not of course in other ways, but in terms of income of different parts of the UK is seen in part as a conspiracy of the centre, the conspiracy of the elite to put down the other areas. And I felt that uh, we should listen and learn from India as always uh, about these issues of horizontal divisions of course, they're different and the structures are different and the analogies shouldn't be overdone. But that very interesting question of how do you recover fast? How do you invest in the infrastructure and technologies of the future uh, as you come out of COVID? I think are questions for everywhere. And I felt that both NK and Shakti posed them in a very direct way. The second was the whole issue um, and, and Swati rightly emphasized it, but ran right through what NK and uh, Shakti had to say. And that was about investment, investment in people, in the human capital, in uh, health and education, and the investment in um, the infrastructure and the physical capital. Of course, we have to emphasize the investment in the natural capital too, which is a very big part of India's stories, its lands and its forests and restoring degraded land. But this is a moment for investment and it's an extended moment for investment. We have to invest much more strongly as a world and India in particular over these next 10, 20 years. And it's very important to start that process now. 80% of the infrastructure that India will have in 2050 is yet to be built. It will be absolutely defining on the kind of growth that India will have. India's investments will have to be some public sector, mostly private sector. Of course, the fractions will vary depending where we look. But that challenge of fostering the investment is in center stage in the Finance Commission report. It lays very strong emphasis, for example, on the power sector and the reform of the power sector and Finance Commission report. And that is a very important part of all this. And it seems to me that this is a moment 
where tax reform, and I started working on tax reform in India, NK will remember, about 1980, and we recommended the VAT, and Manmohan always used to tease us that uh, it, it only took 30 years, and uh, that wasn't bad. But we do have the GST now, and it's an important part of the process. So we have the elements. GST could be much more productive, but we have it now. Property tax, I completely agree with what Swati had to say. Income tax is, of course, important as, uh, um, as India grows uh, richer. I mean, not rich, of course, but better off. And I think environment taxes are taxes that we have to look at as well. So I think upping the tax to GDP ratio in the next decade by five percentage points or so would make a transformation in what India could do on the public side, both on human capital and physical capital, and indeed on natural capital, as it reforms to push strongly in the direction of a private sector driven, private sector investment driven story. Finally, uh, on flexibility and malleability, as NK used it, I thought that was a very powerful way of expressing it. And the 1935 Government of India Act was not particularly malleable in spirit. It had quite rigid allocations of taxation and powers. And when I was working on tax reform in India, I used to begin my seminars in the 1980s and 90s in my English accent by apologizing for the 1935 Government of India Act, which you know was inevitably um, translated into the constitution in large measure. But let's note, and this is really my last point, let's note that malleability was brilliantly anticipated in the constitution itself, because a key element in that malleability is the Finance Commission. It actually is allowed to look, indeed required to look, in the direction of how the state and the centre move uh, over time in the fundamentally important aspect of revenues and expenditures. So we should celebrate, uh, as we do, and as uh, NK and Shakti did, um, you know, the LSE uh, author of big parts of uh, Dr. Ambedkar of that constitution, because that malleability, that flexibility was in there. And it seems to me that another major country, the United States, has quite a lot to learn from uh, that particular story. It's not that things translate in a direct way. Of course, every place has its own structures, but the ideas, I think, can inform it. And let me conclude by saying I hope that those of us at the London School of Economics who've been working in India for a very long time, and even those only beginning to work on India, can be part of that process of the making the recovery into a very strong transformation to a different kind of growth uh, in India. It, 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 it really is possible, even though it's tough. Thank you very much, Nick. Great point about the US toward the end. And of course, the challenge of both investing and managing public finance is, is a big one, uh, about which I'm sure both uh, uh, the chairman and the governor will have more to say. We have about 25 minutes, maybe a little less, and I propose we do as follows. I'm going to turn it back uh, uh, first to the chairman and then the governor. I'm sure they will want to respond and comment on the points made by, by Martin, by Swati, by, by Nick. 
But given that we have lots of uh, questions in the chat, I'm also going to ask one question of each and, um, and uh, ask them to respond to the question and then, uh, uh, and then add any responses to uh, what the discussants had to say. So for, um, for NK, uh, uh, a question from Kavita, who is an LSE MPA 21 graduate. Uh, and the question is this, crude prices seem to be heading upward and they're likely to remain above $75 a barrel. Please tell us a little bit of what this does to public finance in India, what the impact is on consumers, on growth, and also on the current account. And for the governor, there's a question. Uh, let me make sure that I can find it here. Um, yes, a question on um, from Ayman Ghosh. He'd like to know what the RBI can do and is planning to do to bridge India's formal and informal financial sector, uh, given in particular how many people in India are still uh, uh, not connected or not fully connected to modern financial markets. So perhaps let me uh, turn it over to NK first and then to, uh, to Shakti. NK, back to you. Uh, thank you, Andre. Uh, you want me at this stage to directly address the question that Kavita has asked, or um, uh, do you want me to comment on anything that uh, two very enlightened uh, commentators also mentioned in a brief way? I'm in your hands, uh, Andre. If, if, if you would, NK, uh, do all do both. You know, address both the uh, the remarks by the discussants, the question, anything else that comes to mind. Uh, in a way, of course, I will be mindful of the fact that we have 20 more minutes to go. Yeah. So I'm going to make uh, one-liner comments on each of those discussions, uh, main, main points, uh, if I might, with your, with your indulgence, um, uh, Andre. Uh, Martin, I think that uh, you have made some very important uh, points as usual. And uh, I, I respect the integrity. Two uh, very brief comments. Uh, there has been a fairly significant shift from the time that both you and I uh, were important discussants at uh, Shankar's uh, uh, lovely book, and who knows India better than Shankar? I mean, you know him for much longer, but I also know him. But there has been some significant uh, uh, noticeable shift in the positive direction. Uh, the most important being that uh, on the revenues, at long last, the waiting period seems to be over and that the revenue numbers month after month are looking exceedingly healthy, particularly on the indirect taxes. And this has really enabled uh, a somewhat altered debt and fiscal deficit trajectory. Now, whether this is a, a transient uh, thing or not, who knows? But the fact remains that... Uh, there has, been, uh, there has been some significant changes. Of course, you correctly point out that uh, issues of public finance and so on and so forth. I myself, when I made a, a five-year trajectory of the Finance Commission on the uh, revenue and debt numbers, uh, was, a, were a bit, bit, uh, was a bit uh, concerned about what these numbers would, would look like and have given a somewhat altered debt path. You, uh, having given enormous valuable advice to me, in my capacity as a chairman of the FRBM committee, where I had the benefit of consultations with you 
gave certain numbers. And it looks as though the centerpiece of that is something that Nick said, that how efficiently is the government going to change and implement the resource constraints by implementing many of the far-reaching recommendations of the Finance Commission on the Revenue Chapter. Can we increase it by 4 to 5% of GDP? I think it's doable and very credible action on the indirect taxes has begun. I hope that on the direct taxes, uh, it will be an equally uh, credible one. That would, of course, alter the narrative uh, uh, very much. On trade issues, I couldn't agree with you more that there are all these uh, some of these concerns. But again, I think that there has been begun to be uh, uh, serious rethinking in wanting to have uh, arrangements, uh, not only with UK, but with the United States and others, which is going to alter the milieu. To, to, uh, to uh, Swati, uh, I, I agree with many of the things which you mentioned, except that I wish, uh, since you have obviously uh, studied the Finance Commission's recommendations, uh, in some detail, that we were the first one to recognize and realize two things. That considering that the GST em- enveloped and subsumed many of the taxes of local governments, their own tax revenue realization went down and the capacity to make these realizations went down even more significantly. And therefore, we need some compensating mechanism on that. And the examples of Maharashtra and some other states having a separate law in which a certain part directly goes to buttress the revenue losses experienced on account of the GST by the third tier would be an important step. Finally, I think that uh, I want to mention, uh, uh, Swati, that if you read uh, the Finance Commission's report as carefully as indeed you would have done, we are the first one to make the imposition of property taxes a performance criteria. Namely, for the first time, we have said that if you do not impose property taxes, you will lose the benefit of the awards made by the, by the Finance Commission. And we have given them a, a time of one year to get their thing moving. Not only have we said you moved in the direction of property tax, but we believe that uh, we must index that to the rate of growth of the state Cross domestic product. So that, in my view, would be the most empowering financial instrument for enabling the third tier to regain uh, its financial independence, which I agree with you is, is quite central to the, their ability to be able to perform with requisite autonomy and the flexibility with the constitutional amendments intended. With your question on crude prices moving up. Now, the fact remains that. Uh, the crude prices uh, are something we are large importers of crude. Uh, yes, there is a, a tax component on that, uh, which has uh, been uh, talked and debated in India on whether and the behavior, likely behavioral pattern on the crude prices is problematic. The, not only the state governments, but the central government, of course, in, in larger measure, have been the beneficiaries of some of these crude taxes. But I think on the future trajectory, on the behavior of crude prices, at this stage, it would be somewhat more uh, problematic because the fact remains that, as Nick knows very well, and some sympathy for me, 
that uh, although both of us have been working towards a success, a full outcome on the climate issue, the somewhat unnatural behavior of not only the upward trajectory of crude prices, I hope does not take the heat away from people moving much more rapidly to on the energy realization. I stop here. Thank you very much, NK. We're going to uh, turn it over to the governor now. Governor, uh, uh, just a quick reminder, anything you'd like to say in response to the discussion's uh, comments, but also there was a question about uh, bridging the formal and informal financial sectors in India. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, I have no specific uh, comments with regard to the you know interventions which were made by the other participants. They were uh, very useful and uh, I'm sure that many of your participants would have taken note of that. But let me come straight to the uh, question which was uh, put to me. That is basically bridging the formal and informal uh, financial uh, sector. Now, the Reserve Bank has uh, taken uh, very specific uh, steps in this direction. Very quickly, I can just list them out. Uh, you know, some of them, uh, one or two of the measures have been there earlier, but in the recent uh, two or three years, we have taken many more measures. Now, for example, first, uh, you know, we have now permitted uh, co-lending between banks and uh, non-bank uh, finance companies, banks and NBFCs. Now, the NBFCs, they provide the last mile connectivity, areas where the banks are not able to reach, areas where the banks do not have uh, uh, presence. So we have permitted co-lending between the banks and the NBFCs. The NBFCs typically become originators of the loans. They're able to identify the, you know, the borrowers, again, at the, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid and also from the informal sector because they have a better interface with the local people. They have a stronger local presence. So they do the credit appraisal and they're able to sort of establish the capacity and the capacity of the borrowers. They are able to therefore originate the loans and they have to put a certain part of the loan, uh, you know, the credit which is being given. The NBFCs have to put that. The balance will come from the bank. So there's a co-lending model which we have introduced. Uh, two years ago between the banks and the NBFCs. And uh, in fact, we have also permitted uh, the banks to provide uh, liquidity support to the NBFCs uh, to lend to specific sectors like uh, agricultural investment credit or uh, medium and small enterprises and the like. Second, uh, for quite some time now, for about four years, five years now, we have the small finance banks. There are 11 of them. And they have better local presence and local reach. So they are also trying to, their reach mostly covers the informal sector. Third, the, we have this uh, framework for the microfinance institutions where we are trying to, you know, make them much more vibrant and strengthen their regulatory architecture. We have come out with a, a discussion paper which is there in the public domain for uh, regulatory changes, for regulatory reforms in the microfinance institutions. And this is basically the intention is to make this entire framework more robust with the intention to enable these microfinance institutions to have better reach and uh, reach among the poorer sections of the people and uh, in particular, the, the uh, what do you call the informal sector. 
we are also doing uh, you know the similar governance changes in the cooperative banks uh, sector that is a huge area you know which uh, poses lots of challenges but uh, based on our proposal the government has carried out certain amendments to the law relating to cooperative uh, banks and uh, you know which are uh, relating to cooperative banks and urban cooperative banks rural cooperative banks so there also we are trying to bring about uh, several changes in their governance we want to uh, tighten their regulation with the intention to enable them to have better reach among the informal sector even in the digital space also you know our focus is not just on the smartphones we are now working on uh, you know in fact there are mechanisms of using feature phones uh, that is mobile phones which are not smartphones but which are feature phones some amount of cash or you know some amount of transactions can take place through that we have in my last monetary policy on friday uh, last uh, i have announced that uh, we are now moving towards a mechanism of enabling offline payments that is areas where the internet uh, connectivity is either absent or weak we are now focusing on that so so basically what i am trying to say is that a lot of number of initiatives have been taken by the reserve bank in the past and we are continuing to take them essentially to have a better reach of the formal institutional credit to the informal sector and all this we are doing as a part of not only uh, greater credit penetration but also as a part of a very ambitious fis uh, uh, financial inclusion uh, program and a financial inclusion framework that we have uh, set out for uh, india thank you thank you governor we don't have a lot of time left but i'm going to uh, pose one more question to the panel and then i would also love to get some uh, some additional remarks from martin from swati uh, and from minush uh, and nick of course if he'd like to come in again but here's here is the uh, question from the audience and in fact it is also from an spp student ashutosh ranka who is an mpa class of 2022 and the question is uh, for any speaker who would like to tackle it maybe maybe nk or the governor um even before the covid-19 pandemic hit the economy india's gdp growth rate had been slowing down considerably beginning around 2016 what do you think the drivers are behind this slowdown and what should be done about it of course this is a subject that uh, martin touched on but i'd be very curious to get any other thoughts or reactions on the subject shakti do you want to go first before i no i think i think it overlaps with my monetary policy and the growth and mm -hmm. all those aspects so i would request nk singh to please take okay. that question all right in uh, uh, uh mr uh, so so ranka thanks for that question that has been a common theme for many analysis which has taken place it also touches a bit on uh, bit uh, a bit on what uh, some of the observations of uh, martin was Uh, the fact remains that if you look at the proximate period before the covid and the sluggish growth trend which was experienced for various successive quarters it also to some extent synchronizes with uh, a period of comparative global slowdown and must be seen in the context of the somewhat tardy pace at which some of these reform initiatives were going to, were uh, being implemented uh, there was nothing intrinsically wrong Uh, our fiscal numbers at that time were not looking particularly good 
there were pressures on revenue. Uh, there were pressures on uh, the fact that the, the reform momentum, which was uh, to have gathered pace much earlier, was not able to do so. So I think that it, you must see it in the context of a combination of those factors than instead of one isolated factor. Thank you very much. We have about five minutes left, and I would love to get uh, additional remarks from, from Swati and Martin, maybe in that order, and then uh, go back to Nick and Manoj for closing comments. Swati, back to you. Anything you'd like to add or anything you'd much. like to disagree with? Not very much. I acknowledge the huge, the huge challenge that's involved in taking over the Finance, finance Commission and satisfying everybody. And I think this is sort of, it's encouraging to see some of the issues that I talked about highlighted in those reports. But I think the real challenge is going to be, is the government going to put money behind those issues of investing in people? And unless that's there, many younger people relative to you all, like me, feel somewhat as though India is not headed where we would like it to. Thank you, Swati. Martin. God, this has been so wonderful and I've learned so much. So, um, and I particularly enjoyed uh, Swati's intervention, if I may say so, though I, I think India had perfectly the wrong sort of socialism. It needed socialism. It was wrong. We'll discuss that another. Uh, <laughs> there are two um, really big link points which, which are central in this in different ways. The first is the slowing growth. And I believe this goes back further back um, that India lived very well of, over the remarkable and successful reforms of the 90s um, and perhaps early 2000s. And it needs another generation of re massive reform, including, and this links with the second, um, these some of the governance reforms, as I stress, and that comes out in everything. Um, some states are just much better than others. And this is a very big problem in the Federation. I think that's clear. And the other is what Smarty have stressed and others have stressed, which is the big failures, I think, have been in social inclusion uh, across the board, um, health, education. Um, and that has fiscal issues associated with which are massive and difficult and political issues associated with it. But in addition to having higher growth, it has to be growth that genuinely generates employment, incomes, and secure lives. And this is a tremendous challenge, and I think it's a terrible mistake for India to gloss over the scale of the challenge. Thank you, Martin. So, ladies and gentlemen, you, you heard it here first. Next SPP event, a debate between Martin and Swati on the legacy of Indian, Indian socialism. Time <laughs> and place to be announced. That will be fun. Nick, briefly, some uh, additional thoughts before we turn it back to Minouche. Um, Very quickly, uh, the most important one is a thank you to MK and to the governor for leading, leading the discussion. I do want to say that I've seen many Finance Commission reports in my time, and this one was particularly creative and thoughtful, uh, especially in its combination of the reaction to the immediate and the charting of a different path. I think India's future lies in investing in natural capital and human capital in its, you know, its forests and its land and its people, but also 
in a very determined uh, investment now in the infrastructure of the future. And all those things will come together. And the challenge is to put those three forms of investment together and not to see them as it were as a horse race, one uh, against the other. I'd like to participate in the future discussion on um, Indian socialism. I put it in a cap in inverted commas because so much of it was about narrowness around public ownership and the protectionist model of development. That's a very narrow definition of socialism in, uh, in my view. It's much deeper and richer than, uh, than that. But that is to, to be run later on. Thank you so much, Andres, for bringing us together. Thank you, N.K. Shakti, for leading us in this extraordinary discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. So it'll be a three-part debate. Very much looking forward to <laughs> Three-person debate. Manoush. Yes, just again to reiterate, thanks to all the participants. I mean, for me, what really struck me was this, uh, you know, both, you know, NK raised the question of how do you get the balance right between rewarding, you know, allocating resources to need versus performance. And that is very central. When I, when I used to, when I was permanent secretary at the Department for International Development, we actually use the Collier dollar model of allocate, resource allocation to try and get the balance between giving it to countries that really were poor and needed support versus, versus ones that had you know, good policies and could use the money well. And I think so much of what you're doing in the Finance Commission is trying to get that balance right between performance and need. Uh, and you've really laid out that challenge very clearly for us to see. Um, I think the, the thing that struck me most, I think, listening to both Shakti and to NK and the, and the comments from Martin and Shwati is, um, you know, India's at a stage where it's, it's, you know, I guess the question I had at the end was, what is the social contract in India? And is there, in addition to this federal issue and states, and uh, is what is the minimum that every Indian citizen should expect from society in terms of education, health, unemployment, support, skills development? I think both Shakti and NK identified the challenges there, um, but I think if you if you look at what the, I think that is a way to kind of navigate through this dilemma between performance and poverty because you can tolerate differentials between states if the minimum that everyone gets is agreed across the society. And at this stage, when India has launched a health insurance scheme, has has introduced, you know, still has the employment guarantee scheme, for example. All of these ingredients of providing minimum support to all, I think putting that together and thinking of how that, how that is constructed is a, is a really important issue for the future. And I think is, is, a, is probably one of the most exciting policy issues that India has ahead of it, uh, because I think that will determine whether it actually is able to accelerate the growth rate to the kinds of levels we all want to see for India to both deliver for its citizens and take its place uh, on the world stage. So uh, I look forward to future debates and I hope I too can be a part of them. Thank you very much, Minoush, for providing not only a summation, but a very important look forward. Clearly, uh, as Martin, I think said, this has been wonderful. I myself have learned a great deal as well, and uh, people out there listening in, uh, I'm sure le learned uh, very much. 
I'm just going to reiterate my thanks in closing on behalf of the School of Public Policy and the LSE to Manoush, to Martin, to Swati, um, to Nick, and of course, to Governor Das, to Chairman Singh. Uh, what a great event, what a range of important topics, very much the type of, of event, sorry, that uh, the LSE is proud to be hosting. I will see you soon, I hope, in another School of Public Policy event. Thank you very much. Goodbye.